What matters about your experience? Why does life happen the way it does? Where do you pay attention to find meaning? Welcome to Sentience, a podcast from Trinity University's School of Arts and Humanities about how people experience, understand, and express the world. I'm Kyle Gillette, Acting Dean of Arts and Humanities, and each month I'll be talking to artists, scholars, students, and other guests about their work and what it means to them. On this episode, I talk to Dr. Judith Norman, Professor and Chair of Philosophy at Trinity University. Professor Norman's work, among other concerns, includes questions about justice and ethics, both in college seminars and beyond. She has recently explored philosophy of the Americas, centering indigenous traditions of thought. Western philosophy since Plato and Aristotle has often divided the idea of universal truth from specific locations, and has often divided body from mind. Especially since the work of René Descartes, the French Enlightenment philosopher who famously said, I think, therefore I am. The idea of a subject who thinks and reasons has been pitted against a body that breathes, digests, and feels. Philosophy can sometimes be depicted as a privileged activity you only pursue once you've met your needs related to survival. But Professor Norman has recently explored forms of philosophy that emerge from struggle, from particular areas of land, and from lived experience. Professor Norman has extended her teaching to philosophy in elementary schools and prisons, spaces where, as she puts it, questions about what it means to be human are not abstract but urgent and connected to everyday experience. I've had the pleasure to co-teach with Dr. Norman in a bunch of classes, and I've always admired her capacity to bring students' curiosity and interests to the fore. I'm honored to introduce my colleague, friend, and role model as a professor, Judith Norman. Thanks for joining me today, Judith. Oh, well, thanks for asking me. I'm very glad to be doing this. What's at stake for philosophy? Why should anyone be interested in philosophical questions? Why are you? Right. I would say that we're doing philosophy all the time, that mm. we, we all wonder about larger questions, what's at stake in, in our lives, how do we make meaning, how can we work to bring about more justice for ourselves or our situation. And these are, these are questions that philosophers have worked on to give us the tools for, for making greater meaning and sense of what goes on and thinking more clearly about some of the values that um, direct our action. So when in your life did you go from the kind of philosophy everyone is doing by living and having bigger questions to thinking of philosophy as a particular pursuit? When did you have a name for this kind of thinking? Well, in college, <laughs> when it turned out that the medical career wasn't on the horizon for me, so like many people, I found a, a subject that, you know, I found intriguing and I was able to do well. I had a fairly narrow set of values. I saw people sort of like pursuing careers for the sake of, you know, status or power or money. And I thought myself very noble for sort of pursuing a career, <clears throat> excuse me, for the sake of truth and just sort of like to ask these questions in the abstract on their own. I found that, you know, in addition to sort of 
status or power or money on the one hand and truth on the other, there's another career that's headed towards justice and thinking about what makes this planet a better place. And the tendency of philosophy, and frankly, what excited me about philosophy was the sort of loftiness that it gets beyond, you know, the here and now. And what's keeping me in philosophy is the discovery that philosophy can engage in the here and now, that it can interact with questions of justice and bring about, you know, real harm reduction and relief and enable thriving in ways that are really powerful and often overlooked. And so I'm interested in thinking through the intersection between philosophy and justice. That involves, in a sense, doing battle with the term of philosophy. It's a term that sort of has gatekeepiness about it. You know, philosophy, people think of as airy, right? Or sort of wrinkle your nose or that's, you know, too outside of the world. It has elitist connotations, and I'm very concerned to disentangle that and resist in many ways the hierarchization that's entailed in the term. Why is philosophy sometimes associated with a kind of loftiness or standing apart from participation in the world? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a tradition in um, European philosophy, which by no means everybody adheres to, but it's um, certainly a mainstream tradition, of considering materiality to be lesser than or other and to ally with the separated mind. I'm interested in philosophical traditions. I'm newly interested in philosophical traditions that don't start with that as a premise. So I started to look into Native American philosophy a couple of years ago with an idea to teaching a class in it. And I've discovered, I mean, Native American philosophy is is a multifaceted field with different philosophies, but I do see a general commonality of embracing our embodiment. Although I've been reading indigenous North American philosophies and taught a class in which those were at issue, I'm very much a student. I'm not Native American. I'm approaching this as somebody with settler identity who's trying to read and understand this. So I want to avow any sense of expertise, but I can tell you what I've discovered in it, what intrigues me and what makes me want to learn from indigenous philosophers more about how they approach things. A lot of philosophy is local, is based in the land, is not out above the earth, but comes out of a relationship with a particular place and a particular spot of the earth right, as opposed to being universal. Often universality gives us, I mean, there, there's, a, um, there's a sense in which it's positive in that it affirms that we can all be part of a conversation together, but there's a sense in which a lot of differences get denied when we get drowned out in the universal. And I'm attracted to philosophical approaches that enable people to embody their identities, to value, you know, where they come from, and to bring that into the conversation, as opposed to suppressing your origins. Too long, I think, the university has really presupposed this sort of like alienation or separation from our origins. And I think that that's been detrimental to diversity and inclusivity and equity efforts that the university claims to want to uphold, mm-hmm. uh, that your background, your traditions can be a source of, you know, rich wisdom, as opposed to something that you have to forget and come to, to college with a blank sheet and be prepared to learn whatever is put into your head by professors. Mm-hmm. You come from a background with a set of 
wisdom, you're bringing that into the university, and it's your context for learning. I mean, students, people coming into the university, and I came into the university as a learner too, even if I didn't know it at the time, have, you know, have a context that shapes their curiosity, how they receive questions, and if they bring that into the conversation, the conversations can be much richer. I had a, a really poignant moment, I think, where that this came home to me. I started to find out, <clears throat> excuse me, about indigenous traditions in North American philosophy. In South American philosophy, I started to learn that the Aztecs or the Mexica had this, you know, amazing, rich philosophical tradition. I went out and got a book called Aztec Philosophy. I was so excited, right? You know, and I had a student who I showed this to. It's like, here's this book. And this student was from a Hispanic background in Los Angeles, right? And she was a philosophy major. And she had always seen herself as coming from a place of deficit, right? She hadn't had the sort of, frankly, you know, white middle-class background where she had heard about Aristotle and Plato in school and felt, you know, very much in possession of the set of cultural tools that are needed to engage in philosophy at the college level. She felt that she had a deficit in that way, and it put her at a disadvantage in classes. And so I showed her this book on Aztec philosophy, and I said, yeah, and it's fantastic, and it's associated with this language, and I don't know how to pronounce the name of this language. And she looked at it, and she's like, Nahua. She said, my grandma speaks that, right? And so suddenly, you know, she, if we have this conception of philosophy as, you know, Plato and Descartes and Kant and, you know, to contemporary Anglo-American in this sort of tradition, she felt this distance from it, right? You know, she felt like she had to do a lot of work to sort of appropriate this tradition, which was foreign to her background. But there's a tradition of philosophy which is local, and she had this sort of close proximity to it, which gave her this proximity into philosophy. And that experience really reoriented me on the question of who is a philosopher and what does it mean to do philosophy, and, and gave me a sense of purpose that people like her, and there have had a lot of students from, from backgrounds like hers who know what Nahua is and know some of the, the vocabulary, they have a proximity to a local philosophical tradition which needs to be valued. So I'm trying to sort of back down and undo some of the arrogance that philosophy is often associated with and think of myself as a learner of some of these local traditions and say, what can I do to make room for people who are versed in these local traditions to thrive and for students who have proximity for these local traditions and indigenous traditions to be able to learn? That's wonderful to hear how you're also recasting what does it mean to participate in philosophy? So it sounds like participation in philosophy in the way you're talking about is completely different than Plato's theory of participation. For those who don't know, Plato's theory of forms imagines there's an ideal form out there for everything. For example, the physical tables, like the ones we're sitting at here, are just copies of the ideal form of a table. In that sense, each actual table participates in the ideal of tableness because it has a flat top and legs or whatever. But that's very different than saying each person has their own table from home and the experience they bring from that helps them participate, right? Absolutely. Philosophy, I think uh, some of my concern about it as a discipline comes down to the notion it is traditionally very gatekeepy, 
right? Sort of Club Europe and Anglo-America. And and it shouldn't be, right? Philosophy is a set of really robust tools for broadening our, our sense of the meaningfulness of what's around us and opening up channels of communication and empowering people as sort of knowers. And I'd love to think about participation in this sort of broader sense. Well, one broader sense that you have worked on participation has included teaching philosophy for children, teaching people who aren't normally, by most philosophers, I would assume, associated with participants in the academy uh, in that way. And yet, uh, tell me about how children are as participants and how, how you've approached doing philosophy in elementary schools. Oh, thank you. I love talking about that. I mean, kids are natural philosophers. There's a sense in which as you grow older, a lot of things happen to suppress your curiosity, right? You know, I mean, you're told by teachers that some of your questions are stupid or they don't belong in this space and stuff like that. But for one thing and the other, students sometimes, the the curiosity, which you're just bursting with, you know, when you're born, gets channeled and limited and suppressed to questions that other people think matter. And guidance is good, right? But I think often it goes too far. Kids haven't dissociated cognition from playfulness, right? It's all, it's all sort of like a jumble for them. They like to take ideas and sort of poke at them and make them giggle. So I don't come in and say to the kids, sit down and take out your books and I'm going to explain Aristotle to you. I think that by introducing some of these big terms like Aristotle or metaphysics and stuff like that, there's a sense in which it distorts the learning environment for them. It makes them passive. Oh, here's something I don't know. And here's something a little bit intimidating. It unequalizes the playing field in the classroom. So I try not to come in with terms like Aristotle and Plato. I come in, here's something I do. I'll come in, I'll, I'll draw four twos on the board. Two, 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 in a square formation. So like, you know, two and a two, and then below them, two and a two. And I'll say to the students, how many numbers are on the board? So they don't need to know who Plato is, right? right? It's a question that everybody can answer. But this is the thing. If you ask a grown-up that question, they'll come up with, you know, it depends. Is Are there four numbers on the board because there's four twos? Or is there one number on the board because it's just two four times? I mean, they'll come up with one or two answers. How do the kids respond? They come up with hundreds of answers. Wow. It just barrels out of them. They're so playful in the way that they respond to this. So I remember one girl, she was like, okay, so between the twos, there's nothing, (laughs) right? And nothing is zero. So there's like a two, zero, two on the board. Yeah. But then nothing takes up no space. So I can put as many zeros in there as possible. And so the students were sort of like, does nothing take up space? But zero is nothing and it takes up space. So is zero nothing or is it a symbol for nothing? I mean, and they got there on their own by playing after a minute. And so I was talking about the difference between something being a symbol and being a thing. So I wrote dog on the board and I said, is there a dog on the board? They thought that was hilarious, (laughs) right? Right. They thought, but they also played, but they also laughed Mm. and it was all together and their bodies would go up and down, right? They'd bounce as they were thinking. And then they wanted me to write poop on the board, right? (laughs) Because then there's poop on the board, right? You know, sort of like, they're sort of like singing, there's poop on the board, there's poop on the board. 
and we got to think through, you know, the difference between the, a symbol for something and something. And, and which, what is a number? Is a number a symbol? If you draw a two on the board, is that an actual two or is that a symbol for a two? Right? And they're like, wow! Right? As opposed to, you know, I mean, if you ask a room full of professional philosophers that question, they'll get really anxious and they'll try to get cleverer than each other. Mm. But the students were just like, wow. And they were still really happy from the poop, right? And these questions belonged to everyone. It's not like, you know, I hadn't mentioned metaphysics. And, and then, I mean, a Trinity student who was there at the lesson as an observer in this class said, you know, you're talking about examples of things versus the ideals of things. The, the student turned in mouth to me, this is Plato, right? Right. Yes, it was, yeah. right? But it wasn't Plato sort of where I said, sit down, shut up, and I write down, you know, P-L-A-T-O, right? This is like them coming on their own using the material that they have, including poop, to rediscover what's interesting and what's at stake in this question. There's something, when you say the word Plato, you think of the legacy of Platonic thought and mm -hmm. people who have engaged, footnoted, turned it into something as a basis for mm -hmm. building on. But what you're talking about almost seems to be closer to what I would like to imagine Plato's trying to capture in dialogues mm -hmm. about his beloved teacher, Socrates, Absolutely. and the playfulness of what do you really know? Or how do you, what about this? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that Plato himself, you know, it was, and certainly Socrates, wanted to conduct philosophy playfully. He was a wrestler as well as a philosopher, you know, he was a drinker as well. You know, there's a playfulness there. There's a sort of interactivity. There's a will towards posing open-ended questions and the process of asking um, I think it's taken a certain amount of energy to pump that playfulness out of the philosophical tradition, but here we are. Yeah, I mean, do you think it has to do with pedagogy that emphasizes that over time you specialize more and more and you categorize the kinds of things that you do? Recess is separate from learning. Play is separate from conceptualizing. Yeah, I definitely think so. And, you know, the institutionalization and professionalization of philosophy has, has not helped. And it's just joyful to re-experience, you know, philosophy as the pleasure in curiosity. You know, I mean, and a directed curiosity, a curiosity that makes progress towards answering questions and empowering people in their confusion and curiosity. That's where the justice element comes in, uh. right? You know, to sort of like say to the kids at the end, okay, so you're philosophers, right? You can contribute to the making of meaning in the world. We've all had these sort of like moments of disempowerment. Like you go to the doctor and it's sort of like, this hurts. And the doctor's like, I don't care. You know, that's not, your blood test doesn't say that that'll hurt. And so you feel like disempowered. There are things that you know, even medically you know you know your body you know what hurts and there are a lot of spaces where you're disempowered as a knower children oddly in school are often disempowered as knowers they don't know you know they might not know the answer to the geometry problem but they know what they don't know they know the way that this might function in terms of their education they know what they think when they see circles right they have context that they bring to the conversation and often this doesn't take place as a dialogue. So I'm interested in questions that philosophers call epistemic justice, sort of thinking about how people are empowered as knowers. And I'm interested in that regard in the way that the monopoly that Western philosophy has had on the 
the notion of philosophy has erased, contributes to colonialism as a form of erasure, but philosophy contributes to the erasure of knowledge traditions by failing to value people from non-European, Anglo-European traditions as knowers and creators of wisdom and knowledge. And it's a parochial view of philosophy that does that. I'm interested in exploring what's at stake, where that parochial view came from, the damage it's done with a view to trying to undo that and broaden the conception of who's a knower. You've brought up before a book by Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Will you talk a little bit about the implications of overturning the model of an expert and then these ignoramuses who have to learn from the expert? What implications does that kind of thinking have on participation in philosophy? Absolutely. Yeah, it was one of the key texts in my, in my education, discovering Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, the great Brazilian philosopher of education. And I come to think that, you know, the knowledge traditions, learning and education takes place best in a community where people feel supported. Right. So there's this ivory tower sort of sage on a t- mountaintop isolation view of philosophy. And then there's the sense that we can grow best in community where we feel respected and valued as knowers. And I'm taking that very seriously. Another project that I have is I facilitate a program called the Philosophy and Literature Circle at the Torres Unit, a men's prison in Hondo, Texas. It involves a group of Trinity students traveling out to Hondo, Texas and participating in a learning circle with men who are incarcerated there. And it enables us all to work on overcoming some of the prejudices that prevent the formation of community, right? We have, I mean, literal walls between us, but also sort of figurative walls in the form of prejudices and biases about people's background and who counts as a knower. And to sort of enter into community and to, you know, write poetry together and to read poetry together and all sorts of philosophical writings in a pedagogical situation in which everybody feels sort of supported in their own voice as a knower enables the sort of sort of trust that allows people to share their perspective, which contributes to furtherance in the questions that interest us about meaning, right? So we don't just hear from some voices. We get to hear from everybody. It's a human question. The Philosophy and Literature Circle was created by Dr. Mel Webb, who works at UTSA now, and I'm very grateful to them for bringing that model to San Antonio and helping pursue this project of creating learning circles and thinking about how knowledge is best pursued in communities and how creating relationships of trust. It's not secondary to the project of pursuing knowledge. It's primary. The the School of Arts and Humanities, relatively newly formed, deals with humanities as a set of disciplines that have recently been under some suspicion as being maybe disconnected from more practical pursuits that are career-driven, even though I do think there's a plenty of evidence to show how meaningful and interesting pursuing humanities study is for anyone's future, especially college students' future, What kinds of urgency for the questions of humanities and even what it means to be human do you encounter in prison that you might not in a classroom? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'd like to sort of step back a bit and talk a little bit more about my encounter with philosophies of the Americas and what I've learned 
by reading philosophers from indigenous and colonized traditions. Aristotle, he says that philosophy is something that you do more in times of leisure, right? So your first problem as a human being is, you know, eating and being warm and clothed and housed, and you have these sort of urgent problems at the basis of your hierarchy of needs or whatever. And once those are satisfied, you can turn to philosophy and start to ask broader questions about why. What I've discovered in reading some of the philosophers who are writing within a structure of oppression, Franz Fanon and other voices from Latin American philosophy and indigenous philosophies, um, is there's a different model for where philosophy comes from, and that's, you know, concrete needs, right? Yeah, we need food and water, but there are a lot of people who need to be free, right? <laughs> who need to be safe, who need the people in situations of oppression. It's getting the boot off their neck. That is an urgent need, the need to be free. In situations where people are being dehumanized, situations of colonialism or incarceration or racism or these structures of prejudice that work by dehumanizing people, people have an urgent need to assert their humanity and to struggle for freedom. And so philosophical questions like, what does it mean to be a human? And what does it mean to be free? How can I be free? Aren't of abstract, secondary, give me a meal and then maybe I'll think about this, right? These are questions that are questions of life and death. You have to figure out how to do this if you're going to survive. And so I'm very impressed by how Bell Hooks says she's discovered works like Freire, but also how a Freire discovered works like Hegel, for God's sake, right? Because Hegel talks about what it means to struggle for freedom. And this is, it's not just some sort of abstract, you know, Western-centric text, although it is that, but in the hands of a freedom fighter, in hands of somebody who needs to be free, it becomes a tool that they can use for their own liberation. And so I'm very interested in philosophy born of struggle, people who do philosophy from a perspective of needing liberation, needing to think through the questions of humanization. Again, it's a set of voices which have often been marginalized from philosophy, but I think belong very much in the center of the conversation. So it sounds like even Hegel, who a lot of people would associate with a very European or Eurocentric idea of history, also offers something important for Bell Hooks' philosophy of liberation because of his focus on struggle and progress. I was very inspired by the African-American philosopher Bell Hooks, who writes about encountering some of this sort of Western-centric theory. She says she was so thirsty. She was so thirsty, and these texts came along, and they were something for her to drink, to give her sustenance. And they had some dirt in them, right? There's some crap in there. And she's like, if you're genuinely thirsty, you don't say, ooh, you know, that water has a piece of dirt in it. You say, thank you, water. You're nurturing me. Didn't like the dirt, but you don't throw it out, right? There's something about dismissing Hegel from a privileged perspective and saying it's Western. It is Western centric. But I listen to somebody like Bell Hooks and people who sort of say, you know, I needed this. Yeah, there's crap in it, right? But I'm taking what I need in it because I need it. I don't have the luxury of sorting through. There's tools in here I can use. 
works. It's not a perspective I come up with myself. I'm in a privileged position. But if I put aside my philosophically inculcated arrogance and sort of take the position of a learner and hear some of what people from these other perspectives are saying about these texts and these ideas, I find such a wisdom and relevance and pleasure in hearing it. I mean, I, I want to get back to the idea of the pleasure of curiosity again, right? I'm being very grim with colonialism. But yeah, there's a sort of falling in love with philosophy all over again that this enables. I was just curious about your return as a student and your return to very different kinds of students, how that's transformed how you are as a teacher to Trinity students as well. Yeah, I feel like I can relate to Trinity students the more I see myself as a student the more I can say, you know, we're in it together, the more I could admit my ignorance, goodness. We're all sort of pretending that we know things, right? In a sense, this is one of the damages that education does. Uh, we have to sort of assume positions of expertise and sometimes, you know, a little prematurely, right? <laughs> we fake it till we make it. And there's a reason for doing that. But there's also damage done when we turn off the curiosity and pretend that we already know. We don't learn, right? We're not open. What would it mean to you to see a philosopher's play or philosophy play an important role in the public life going Aha. forward? <laughs> I'm very hopeful about the discipline of philosophy. I think that it's becoming much less gatekeepy, much more open to a diversity of perspectives, more self-reflective about some of its limitations. And there's a commitment in the field to public philosophy. You know, I have a general decline and fall narrative about most things, right? The world's going to hell, or it's like, ain't it the case? But you know, when I look at my field, I feel a lot of hope. Thank you, Dr. Norman, for joining us today on Sentience, a podcast featuring voices in arts and humanities at Trinity University. We thank you for talking to us about how philosophy can work as a form of liberation. Thank you for asking me. This has been a pleasure. Stay tuned for more stimulating conversations about arts and humanities. I'm your host, Kyle Gillette. Thanks for listening.